Walk in Your Excellence. I'm your host, Sean Larry, and thanks for listening into this week's episode of Walk in Your Excellence. How many of you remember the movie Sister Act, right? Sister Act with Whoopi Goldberg. I swear to you, I probably watched Sister Act 2 on VHS, mind you, so many times that the tape should have certainly broken. It was one of my favorite movies of all time with Lauren Hill. In that movie, one of my favorite parts was when Sister Mary Clarence had already changed the culture of her classroom around, right? And so they broke out in song, and they said, if you want to be somebody, if you want to go somewhere, you better wake up and pay attention. Today's guest reminds me of both Sister Mary Clarence in that movie and Lauren Hill. Both of those characters embody artistic excellence, style, infectious personalities, and a relentless focus on a larger vision. Tanisha Fordham is someone whose vision, she is living it out every single day, and she does it so gracefully with a smile. She started her own company when she was in college, y'all. So she's been an entrepreneur for over a decade. She just released her first book, she is a director and a producer, and one of the films she is a producer of is being considered for an Oscar nomination for Best Narrative Short Films. Yup, you heard me, an Oscar. This young woman has dedicated her life to mentorship and educating and cultivating the next generation of Spike Lee's and Shonda Rhimes. Please join me in welcoming Miss Tanisha Fordham. Wow. <laughs> that was quite the introduction. Yes, that's you. It's not me. That's Dang. all you. Uh, Tanisha, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am. I'm still stuck on the Oscar nomination thing. Uh, We're going to get there. Don't, don't spoil it too quickly. We're going to okay. get there. But I want you to, like, let's jump right in. And tell us who Tanisha Fordham is. Tell us. Well, it's so funny that you started there with like that mentor and just creative and dedicated to trying to do the best that I can do and cultivate like young minds and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I think if the, if if I were to give the first thing that comes to mind when you ask me who I am is like a Jesus girl, like okay. a Jesus girl to my bits, to my core. I was raised in the church in and around people who were like really, really excellent and awesome and cool and revolutionary and young, mm -hmm. but like so sold out for God. Nice. And I think that was a privilege and such a joy and such an honor because I think a lot of young people think of coolness and it's like in this box and it's like to the right. And then they think of like God and like not even necessarily God because we're not necessarily in a God culture, but mm -hmm. things that are right, like being good, being a mentor, being smart. And those things are in a box and they're like to the left. Yeah. But I grew up in, I saw that like both could live yeah. simultaneously in the same space and in the same place and so for me like that's really shaped and informed like who I want to be and mm -hmm. then who I hope that others see that they can be so I think that that's what I would say I, I hope I'm kind of cool I mean yeah. I may not no, be you're cool, cool. I see. Okay. I, you're, you're pretty cool <laughs> okay, so, so tell me a little bit more about your childhood so I can imagine that you grew up pretty much in the church that your family was very church oriented what was your childhood like yeah I grew up in the church but I grew up without a father which is okay. like so kind of like counterculture to a lot of people my mom was 19 when she had me 18 when she got pregnant teenage mom teenage mom never met my father even till this day wow um, yeah which is like you know that's it's interesting because small story I never I didn't realize I didn't have a father until I was a junior in, in uh, high school mm. and I went to a father-daughter dance and everyone was going around the table like introducing their father right. one by one by one. Oh, this is my father John this is my father Frank and mm. then they got to me and I was like oh my god this is my uncle like it's not my father mm. and it was the first time that I realized that most people do have fathers and that I did not have a father right. because my upbringing like I had a great grandfather who yeah. like really stood in that gap and so it would really never like dawned on me like this is a thing my mom was young when she had me. My father used to deal drugs mm -hmm. and that was just not what my mom wanted. She was in college and so she just completely distanced herself. So yeah, yeah I grew up in the church and yeah. I went to, I grew up in a white neighborhood but I was around a lot of like 
black community stuff. My church was mm-hmm. in a black community. So I think I have had a pretty well-rounded experience growing up. Yeah, I, I want to touch a little bit more on, on the father thing. So this is something that I deal with, right? Because I didn't grow up with the with the father either. And actually, just to share a story with you really quickly, this week I was driving to work and my tire randomly exploded okay. and I spun off the road. It was like super crazy. Oh God, that's yeah, traumatic. It, exactly. It was traumatic. I'm, and, and so I find myself at 6 a.m. I get to work every morning around 6.15 and 6.05, no one's really on the road in New York City right. at that time, which is good. Like, yeah. God forbid this happened yeah, at 6.30. I and so I, I find myself on the side of the road trying to figure out like, hey, I have to now change my tire because right. I'm an irresponsible adult that doesn't have roadside assistance <laughs> no, or AAA. No, no. <laughs> and I'm like looking in the back for the spare tire. I can't find right. the spare tire. Yeah. I'm Googling like how to change a spare tire. And I share that because like I had like a fatherless day in that yeah, moment and like felt that. a little bit like, wow, I didn't have this person who was able to like teach me these things. Yeah. And so while I do hear that you had a strong grandfather and had father figures in your life, like what impact does that have on, on an adult even now reflecting like not having a father? I know this sounds so corny and like yeah. maybe I'm like living in some like happy bubble, mm-hmm. but I'm being serious with you. I did not know. And I think that that really, and even till this day, like you didn't know or you didn't feel the impact. I didn't feel the impact. Gotcha. But I think that goes to show like if we were to be intentional about how we raise our communities and how we raise our families, like Mm. there was no impact because my mom shielded me from it. Mm. My father was a drug dealer. Like if he had been in my life, a lot of people would argue, well, like you would have had a father and that would have been, no, I would have had a father who was a drug dealer. He would have been in my house with all of his drug craziness, Mm -hmm. whatever that means. You know what I mean? But because my mom drew the line and held that line like you it I had no impact somebody just recently told me like and I'm I'm 30 somebody recently told me uh you're 30 years old like just wait you're gonna have a child and like then the impact will like it'll start to sink in that you don't have a father and I, I like bind that and I am not gonna accept that but also like I really I don't believe that that is going to be the case because that has not been my life there was never a void right and so I don't believe that there will now start to be some void. There's not a void. There's lots of strong men in my in my life. Mm-hmm. I have an amazing husband. Yeah. My grandfather is passed, but my uncle is still alive. So it's just like mm-hmm. it has had no effect. Thank thank the Lord. Yeah, that's awesome here. That's awesome here. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, now, beside it all, you are such an, an extremely talented individual. Like. I have heard you rap. I have heard you, <laughs> yes, I have heard you do spoken word. I've heard you sing. I've seen you, you know, stand in front of students. I, I've seen the monologues. I have watched you compel audiences through so many different avenues. I want to tap into that passion. Where did it come from? Oh, goodness. I think I'm just a ham. I think, like, <laughs> from the time I've been like a little girl, I just think that I'm a ham. And I think I recognize the importance and the honor Mm -hmm. of being on a mic. Like even right now, like whoever's listening to us, like what an honor, you know what I mean? An honor to be able to shape something that someone is going to feel or something that someone might do in the future. Like what an honor. And so I think that just from a very young age, I've always like recognized that like you have a microphone, someone's listening. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've always wanted to kind of 
express that in as many ways as possible. Yeah. So awesome. That's good to hear. And so I I know that you have like a deep connection to black men in general, Mm -hmm. right? And I want to talk a little bit about like some of the work that you've done, the advocacy work that you've done uh, uh, around like black men. And I think what you've been doing is inspiring. And I I don't think a lot of of black women are doing that work. You know, I can think of like the, you know, Dr. David Stovall, Dr. Eddie Fergus, like um, amazing people who are really, uh, Hill Harper at UPenn, really studying black men, right? But you're doing it in such an artistic way. I have a master's degree in politics and advocacy, and I've dedicated my entire professional career to deeply understanding the journey of the black man, Mm -hmm. right? Not just because Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. am a black man, but most recently, gun violence has impacted my family in a large way, right? With the loss of my little brother. And so my focus has has shifted a little bit to study gun violence a little bit more and how it's impacting our communities. But on the other end, I think in the last couple of years, we have seen like mass shootings across America that are like becoming an epidemic, in my opinion. Like Orlando and like Las Vegas are just the ones that immediately stick out in my mind. But uh, America is is an interesting place because if mass shootings were executed, right, and I'm about to get real with you and I want to hear your thoughts. Okay. (laughs) If if mass shootings were executed by mostly brown bodies, Mm -hmm. right, the conversation would quickly, quickly be reformed as an immigration issue, right? Okay. Now, now we got to start thinking about immigration policies and where are all the black, where are the black and brown bodies coming from right. who are shooting all these people? Right. If hundreds of shootings were committed at the hands of black men, right, right our country would then excuse police brutality. That it would minimize the the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement, right? And oh, it for would, sure. it, it would, and it would exacerbate like who we already think the black man is, those stereotypes Mm -hmm. perpetuating that negativity. Mm -hmm. But get this, from 1982 to 2012, right, of the 62 mass murders in America, 44 of them were white men and a woman. So that's well over, you know, that's well over three-fourths, right? (laughs) right. But we don't see that as like a white man's problem, Mm -hmm. when clearly that's what it is. Now, you, you started... A shots fire campaign, mm-hmm. correct? Yes. And I I want to hear about that and its impact and where it came from. Okay. <laughs> Touch on all of the things I just dropped on you. Okay. Okay, so the shots fired campaign I did in February of last year, 2017. Mm-hmm. I was living in Phoenix, Arizona at the time, and there had been like a myriad of all of these black men being killed. Mm-hmm. Just like man after man after man. Philando Castile, Tamir Rice, it was just person, name after name after name. And yeah. at the time I was shooting a documentary, so we just happened to be in a lot of southern states and okay. I saw the impact of these being black faces that were being shot and like how mm. so many people were suffering like this vicarious trauma. Like you're looking at Facebook and social media and people are like really genuinely sad and impacted by the fact that someone they don't know has been shot. But it's like, it's because it's all of us and the yeah. faces look just like our faces, the faces of our fathers mm-hmm. and our children and our uncles. And so I just wanted to drive the point home that while we are seeing all of these people shot at Mm. and while there seems to be this narrative that is trying to be formed about like why we are shooting black men oh Philando Castile had weed in the car oh Eric Garner was selling cigarettes illegally oh Mike Brown was stealing cigarellos yada yada on and on Mm -hmm. they're trying to shape and form the narrative Mm -hmm. I wanted to say like it's so interesting though because when they are faces that are not brown faces we allow them to make 
mistakes. We allow them to make decisions that are bad because that's what all people do. People make bad decisions. Right. Even the best of people make bad decisions, mm -hmm. but that does not make them a bad person. Right. So if you're going to like tell the narrative of like he was stealing cigarellos, Mike Brown, are you also going to tell that he had improved on his GPA that year? Is that going to be also part of the narrative? Because now the little boy is dead. And I don't want the last thing that we remember about him yeah. to be that he was stealing cigarellos. And so that's kind of where this idea came from, this idea that we are human beings. And if, if you watched any of the videos, they all of the men told the way that they were the stereotype. Mm. Yes, I do eat fried chicken sometimes. Yes, I have my husband has has a PhD in electrical engineering. He graduated mm. with a 4.0 GPA from yes. his PhD program. Yes. But he went to jail when he was 12 wow. for breaking and entering into a high school or into a middle school. Mm -hmm. So, yes. I did break and enter into this middle school, but with a little bit of love and mm -hmm. faith mm -hmm. in humanity and decency, I was able to grow a an opportunity that so many people don't get because all we see is young black men who are doing something wrong yeah. and we think that is the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. When you shoot them and kill them, yeah. that's the end of the story because right. you've ended the story. But if you give them an opportunity to live beyond that one moment, we'll find that they're just like everybody else, ev just like everybody else, flawed, yeah. imperfect, mm -hmm. but perfect in what their journey might possibly give them the opportunity to be. So that's what the Shots Fired campaign was. 28 men, one for every day in the month of February for Black History Month. Okay. All of them from the age of, we got a two-year-old, and then the oldest was 71. Wow. And just all telling the ways that, yes, I, I may have some ways that I fit the stereotype, but here are all of the ways that I'm not the stereotype. I'm yeah. taking care of my family. <clears throat> I have a PhD. Yeah. I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm a young man who's under the age of 18 and is still already pursuing this dream. So that's what it was about. I love it. I love it. And you're telling this story through like media, which is so interesting. Yeah. Like I, I compare your work to Hill Hopper's work, which I, I see I you agreeing oh, with gosh, me, which I, I, I love his, his work, right? And it's about this like creating, like dispelling the deficit-based minds, like narrative that has been created yeah. about the black man yeah. and really focusing on like your husband, yeah. right? The the people, the the black principal, like the, the black lawyer, the, the world changers that have an asset-based narrative that should be told about them, yeah. right? Like there are black men who are graduating from college. There are black men who are pursuing post-secondary degrees. And why is that story not told? Yet in the media, we see like, those last moments of some amazing individuals, amazing black men, are the stories being told like you stealing cigarillos yeah. or you like carrying cigarettes. Do you think that the media like intentionally does that? Well, it's interesting because I, I would like to believe that the media is like an equal opportunity employer, that it just like mm. tells you the like story. To that. Yeah, I'd like to believe that. Right. <laughs> but let me tell you and and, and let me also say something else. It's like kind of on another point. Mm -hmm. In our in inside of our school, I think about the fact that there are so many black men inside of my school building mm -hmm. who are amazing. You are a principal. <laughs> oh. You're a principal and you're so young. I drive that point home with the kids all the time. Oh. We've got a young man a young man named Mr. Goodlow. He's a lawyer. Yeah. And yet when the kids start talking about I listen to them, I you know, because I, I take kind of this stuff in. Yeah. When they start talking about what black people do, they yeah. automatically go to like people getting pistol whipped in Newark. Yeah. They automatically go to like my father who sells drugs. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if it is that what's going on in the brain, like literally inside of our brains, is it is it that negative stuff takes up more space, mm. takes up more weight or something like that? Like mm -hmm. it's it's the that whole that age old adage of the squeaky wheel gets the attention right so the one person who's pistol whipping people is like worth the weight of like three people who have 
law degrees and who yeah. are principals. I'm not really sure, but I know this. I know that regardless of what the media is going to do, we have to continue to tell our own stories. Yeah. And so I don't allow students inside of my classrooms to when they are telling their stories, like that's not the story you're gonna tell. Right. I understand somebody got in a fight yesterday at school, but like you know how many students have 4.0 GPAs here or right. 3.6 GPAs? And so we're gonna focus on like those students mm -hmm. because we are the ones speaking the narrative. Yeah. And so I think that the media is gonna do what the media is gonna do. Yeah. But we have the power to turn off that TV mm -hmm. and to make make important the messages that we feel like deserve the microphone. Yeah. And so I think like the power ultimately resides within us. Yeah, I love um, how so. you just said it. I was just about to say it. Like what I hear you saying is that like it's really up to us to tell those stories. We can't leave it up to media. We can't leave it up to anyone else. We have to tell those stories. Right. Or if we allow it, it to be left in the hands of other people, it will always be perpetuated in a negative light. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So I like I, I'm always intrigued by people who have gone to an HBCU. Ah, I think this yes, comes out in a lot. <laughs> sorry, I had to do it. I'm sorry, y'all had to do it. I think I like I did not know I did not go to an HBCU. Okay. But you also have had a different experience because you did not get your master's at an HBCU, mm -hmm. correct? No. Okay, that's where I think sets you apart, and like I want to pick your brain as a principal of a high school. I have to really invest a ton of time uh, ensuring that students have a solid college match, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That they are able to go to college that is a fit for them, that doesn't leave them in tens of thousands of dollars in debt. And I'm always intrigued by those who have a story of what I consider to be a taste of the both worlds, okay. right? The PWI okay. and the HBCU. Okay. <laughs> Describe to me how your experience at A&T, right? Yeah, A&T. And Northeastern okay. compare and contrast. Okay, so let me start by saying, if we rewind just a little bit okay. further back, I went to a predominantly white, I went to an all-girls Catholic high school. There mm. were only five black girls in the entire graduating class. Gotcha. So my experience was very white to begin with, mm -hmm. which is the reason why I went to an HBCU. Okay. I went to HBCU to be like, oh, my people. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I was very excited to go to an HBCU. I really think that for someone who has not had a black experience, a black educational experience specifically, yeah. going to an HBCU is like life changing. Yeah. It's like parties live right next door to like getting a 4.0. And I know that sounds mm. ridiculous, but it's like, it's it's our culture. Yeah. Black people, I don't know if you guys saw that video that went viral of like the girl, she was from Nigeria and they were at her graduation, her family, they were all at her graduation. They were wow. like, we got to work to, and they started like, <laughs> they're like dancing and clapping around her. And this was at a PWI, yeah. but and this was at her graduation, but they're just all communal. They're all around her dancing. <laughs> Like, right. I know that's so stereotypical, but that is what they were doing. Right. Because that is what we do culturally. That's mm. what we do. We fry fish. We put on loud music at the mm -hmm. parties. You know what I'm saying? At, like, family reunions. Yeah. And we do line dancing. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. And at, HB at the HBCU that I went to, North Carolina A&T, I was able to be excellent academically. Yeah. But then also understand that that didn't require that like I lay down all the things that are so dear to me. Right. That doesn't require that I lay down music or right. that I lay down like Fried Chicken Friday. Right. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> fried Chicken Friday. Every Friday in the cafe, there'd be a DJ, a DJ in the cafeteria, like dun 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 right. dun, 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 dun dun dun, and people are like walking through the cafeteria getting chicken. Wow. It was just like literally, it was like everything in my life. Now. 
on the flip side of that same coin, Northeastern, you know, there was just a lack of the culture. Mm. Academically, it was awesome. But the culture, that's what I really missed out on. It's like, what's happening here? Yeah. Where what Other than academics and like having cool sports teams. And so for me, it's just an opportunity and one that really you don't get very often in life yeah. ever, maybe ever again, like yeah. an opportunity to see academics live right next door to like culture that is bursting at its seams. It's yeah. 12 o'clock in the morning, 12 a.m. and people are on the strip. Like, I will never forget the day Barack Obama won president. Oh I was, my God, I was on, you I was, and me both. I was a senior oh, at North Carolina and A&T and I was in the union, they were having a watch party. They announced that he won and everybody lost it. it. I was so overwhelmed. I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed for like 10 minutes and when I could finally get myself together, I went outside on what we call the strip which is the longest street that runs through the campus mm -hmm. and there were all of these cars and motorcycles all pulled up and parked on the street. Everyone blasting Jeezy's My President is Black. Right. And everybody was just alive. And just to, again, just to know that this is an academic space. Yes, we're playing Jeezy. My president is black, my Lambos, yep. but this is an academic space. Tomorrow we're gonna get up and we're gonna be the dream. We're gonna get up at 8.30 and we're gonna go to class, to math class, to calculus, to whatever, to live up to this idea that now Barack Obama has shown us that we could be whatever and we're going to live in that reality yeah. here together in spite of the fact that we're listening to crazy music or doing mm -hmm. crazy things. And so for me, that's what the HBCU experience yeah, was. Yeah, you I just really brought me somebody. back. <laughs> you brought me back to that moment in 2008. Oh, I too was oh, in college. And I, I like at Cornell, Cornell has something like 20, 24 different libraries okay. or something. There's That's still crazy. a video like little, literally of us all running from uh, Ujima, which is like the, the, the Afrocentric dorm. Like okay. it's a, the black dorm. Okay. Right? Let's <laughs> okay. call it what it is. And so I mean, and I think that there's, there's it's important that we have a space like that, like at an Ivy absolutely, League institution. Absolutely. We went running through every library <laughs> when it was announced, like screaming. I, the video is oh, literally gosh. on my Facebook and it's such a historical magical moment for us to like be at a, one of the best universities in the country yeah. right that right. that only like 6% of black people yeah. get into and then and then graduate from to be able to like be in that space and still be black and excellent at so young and to know that like we elected him. That's right. Like that was the Isn't age that, that like we turned eighteen we and like just were old we were just just made just it. Just made it. Just made it. My birthday was in September, Mine so too. I just made yeah. it. Yeah. Super <laughs> excited to like elect a black president. Yeah. So thanks for for sharing that for me. I want to talk to you about like a million different things, but I want you to to shine. Tell me about Enlightened Visions. Okay. Right. That's your organization. Yes. You started. Yes. Enlightened Visions is a company that I started in two thousand seven, geared towards in college though. In Let's college. not downplay that. I was a junior that. in college. You've yeah. been an entrepreneur since you've been in college. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big deal. Yeah, thank you. Um, but yeah, geared towards countering negative media with positive media. Um, okay. And it started kind of with the idea that I had a, a newspaper. There was a newspaper on campus. I didn't like the stuff they were publishing. I was like, I'm going to be rebellious. I'm going <laughs> to fix it. Right. So I started publishing my own newspaper. Of course, shortly thereafter, like not to say that newspapers are dead, but you know, social mm -hmm. media and stuff has definitely changed the trajectory of like the printed sure. media. And so shortly thereafter, that was the reality. And so we, we quickly made the transition to like theater and film and documentaries and have really been just so awesomely blessed with the opportunity to like every year we do about four 
original productions. Okay. And it's looked differently over the years because when I started the company, I was in North Carolina. I actually had a theater in mm-hmm. North Carolina that I ran, and we did the productions in-house. Um, when I moved to L.A., we no longer had a space because, you know, L.A. is a different place. But that allowed for the opportunity to be, like, a lot of stuff online where we did a lot of digital formatting stuff. Um, and then same thing in Phoenix and now here in New Jersey, just trying to kind of figure out what that what that will be. But that's it's through that company that I released the book. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So yeah, so that's kind of what we do. Mostly edgy, faith-based content. Okay. Um, but of course, depending on what space I'm in and what opportunities I'm presented with, sometimes it's not faith-based because a lot, you know, some organizations that we might partner with may not necessarily have like a religious tilt, and in, in which case I've got to figure out something else to say. And there's so much positive stuff to say regardless. Um, so yeah. Gotcha. Awesome. Now, I've left out two major important details about your life that we have to talk about. Okay. Right? And so I think the, the inner Olivia Pope in me okay. is like thinking like you are like the the next Shonda Rhimes. Okay, uh, the better Shonda Rhimes, <laughs> okay. of course, right? The, the Tanisha Fordham. Okay. And you are a published author. Yes. So I, are you. I, Sorry. Well, please. I did that. <laughs> <laughs> and and Oscar nomination, like I'm getting goosebumps it's just thinking lingering. about it. Oh talk to me God. about your book and talk to me about this amazing nomination. Okay, so the book entitled Go Black Boy Fly, I wrote it. It's so funny because it's like all these things just started bursting from my scenes mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. I just think it was the Philando Castile video. Just I know not to go yeah. back again, but I'm being serious. I think that just is sna- something in me snapped watching yeah. that video yeah. of that man bleeding out in that car and the cops are still holding the gun at him. Mm. He is d- like, that what imagery. more do you want? He, I mean, he is dying, you know, and we're watching this video like this cannot be real. Mm. And they are still holding that gun at him. I think something just snapped inside of me. So around the same time as the Shots Fired campaign, it was just like, what can I do to, like, fix this? You know, there's Mm -hmm. nothing any of us can do, but, like, what can I do to contribute um, to fixing it? And um, so that's where the book Go Black Boy Fly came from. Gotcha. Shots Fired was more of my way of, like, addressing, like, yes, sometimes we are stereotypical things, but that does not define us. And Go Black Boy Fly was, like, my ode to all of, like, the little black boys and Mm -hmm. black men who would never get to say their own stories yeah. now. And and not just those black boys and black men, but all the black boys and black men who like, we have no idea what they will be. Yeah. There's like a young black boy in the studio with me right now. Mm-hmm. And like, I just, I know he can be anything he wants to be. He can be anything he wants to be. And it's like, if, if we can like trigger something in people to recognize that mm-hmm. and to not always look at the negative, but to believe, truly believe, because you know, you we hear that a lot now, like you can do anything, you can be anything, but like we obviously don't believe that mm. because then we continue to do all of the things that we have already seen people do. We continue right. to perpetuate the stereotype. So then it means that it's not really planted down inside of us. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And so that's what the book Go Black Boy Fly was. It was like my ode and not only my ode, but like my charge, like yeah. go black boy beautiful that's beautiful do your thing it's up to you to do like i can't do it for you you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. and so that's what that was about the oscar yeah i'm like i'm excited for you 
Okay. I'm just so. hoping I can go to the after party. I mean, <laughs> I, I am your boss. I'm trying to get a <laughs> ticket or something. <laughs> so I'm, I have to, of course, say the the black man who is the visionary for it, Kevin Wilson mm-hmm. is his name, Kevin Wilson Jr. Um, he had been telling the story of Emmett Till since he was in college. He was a year behind me. We went to school together. Okay. And since he started doing the play, the Emmett Till story. Mm-hmm. And he did the play on campus. And then he did the play in New York City. And he, it's just something about the story like he couldn't let go of. And I would talk to him because this is now like, 10 years since the first time that he's done the play. Right. He just couldn't let it go. So last year, he's a a graduate film student at NYU. He decided to do the story of Emmett Till as a film. Mm. And it's entitled My Nephew Emmett. It's told from the perspective of the uncle. Wow. So from this perspective of like this helpless uncle, when these men walk in to like drag Emmett through, but there's nothing he can do. Like there's literally nothing he can do. They're in rural Mississippi, south of 1959, like what can, 55, what can they do? You know what I mean? And so... The story just took off. When we were in Mississippi and we were location scouting, you won't believe this, we saw the marker that um, marked where Emmett Till was pulled out of the Tallahatchie River. Wow. All shot up, bullets sprayed through it. So the guy, Kevin Wilson, who was the director, he took a picture of it and it went viral. And he got, as a result, interviewed on like CNN, Mm -hmm. MSNBC, and like we knew we had something. You know what I mean? And um we went to the local people who are in charge of like keeping signs up and stuff like that and they said that they had put up four signs in like the past six years and every time they change the marker somebody goes and sprays bullets in it this is 2017 that is crazy who is who what is going on in the world I mean Lord have mercy what did Emmett Till do that you are spraying bullets through the marker remembering just that he was killed brutally regardless of what you think about the scenario that surrounded the death it doesn't matter a human being has been put through a meat grinder drug through the city of through the city of money Mississippi and then thrown into the Tallahatchie River Mm. like we can't all agree that that was inhumane and so we went, we shot the film, and like he got the Student Academy Award, which mm-hmm. is basically, it's the same thing as the Oscars, but you are um, selected based off of being a student at these various universities. Mm-hmm. He, he received the Student Academy Award, and so now on um, January 23rd, this coming Tuesday, we will find out whether or not, there are 10 films in the narrative shorts being considered, yeah. and five will get the nomination. Okay. So we will find out. Wow. Prayers up. I'm that so excited. Is exci- yeah, I'm that so excited. Is like- I produced on the film, so I mostly did a lot of the like behind the scenes, like we'd be running around Mississippi trying yeah. to find like specific props that were needed mm-hmm. or trying to make sure location stuff was secured. So I had the littlest role, truly. And I'm not just like downplaying it. I right. had the littlest role. Um, but I'm so very thankful to have been right. a part of uh, the production. Well, there is no role too small. Oh, like you you, cool. need, you need to take all the credit. <laughs> uh, and I'm super excited for you. you. I mean, I... I I am super excited for you. I can't wait for Tuesday and and all the great things that are in store for you. Tanisha, I just want to I just want to thank you for coming. Like you have thank opened you. up my eyes. I I see the passion. Like I hear the passion and like the your future, the trajectory of your future is so bright thank um, you. and so inspirational for young women. Young women who like want to go into this world that's dominated by men, yeah, right? Producing either true. in front of the scenes, behind the scenes, it's video, true. podcast, media, whatever have you. It's true. Like, there's a small percentage of women who are doing this and doing it really big, and I'm so super excited about your future. Tell us, Tanisha, how are you walking in your excellence every day? 
I just think it's so simple. It's just showing up. You know, mm. like I've always told my husband, like, I don't, I, and I'm not just saying this, I'm, I'm being so serious. If God doesn't, it's just not in like my stars, so to speak, to like be known by millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people or thousands of people. Like if, yeah. if the only people who ever get to meet me are like the people inside of this space right now and yeah. like the people I've already met. It's such an honor. You're showing up. You matter. It's important. Mm -hmm. It's important that you do the small things really, really well. Like, you know how important it is to our students that we like, whether they realize it or not, Mm because I think that some of them would disagree, like, I don't care if you come back to the school, but they do. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't come, then there's a space. There's suddenly a void. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that is in every part of our life every day if you're a wife and you don't get up and like give your husband a hug who's gonna do that Mm. who's gonna show him the love who you've been put in that space to fill it and to fill it with as much like light and brilliance as you can like possibly muster up so I think for me walking in excellence is really small it's like you know saying hi to somebody when I walk by them so that they recognize you're not alone on this earth. Yeah. You're not by yourself. All my friends always laugh at me because like, when I'm hiking and stuff like that, I'll be like, hey, how are you? And the person will say hi. And I'll be like, see you later. And my friends are always like, are you going to see them later? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you're never going to see that person ever again. But I tell my friends, it's not me saying I'll see you later. It's me saying I see you I now. I see you, yeah. I want you to know that you're not alone on this trail. You're not by yourself. Just in case you were going to, like, jump into a river, jump off a bridge, because that's possible, and that happens. Mm-hmm. And we miss opportunities all the time to save people in radical ways. And we're not going to get an Oscar for it. Right. Nobody's giving you Teacher of the Year because you did it. Yeah. Nobody's going to give you an Emmy or Tony or any kind of recognition. It's not going to get 100,000 people to follow you on social media but what it did is it shifted the world yeah it changed the world for somebody maybe only one person but for somebody and so for me that's what um walking in your excellence is just showing up in all of the small and big ways that you're given the opportunity to do and just taking pride in it just taking pride in every opportunity that you have to show up in this world wow that is so moving oh my gosh Tanisha tell us where where can we find you Oh, okay. My name, I'm so whack. I'm so (laughs) whack. My name on all my social media is just my name. It's just. No, that's called simple (laughs) and like easy. (laughs) And I wish everyone did it. Right. (laughs) So my name is just Tanisha Fordham and it's T-A-N-I-S-H-A Fordham, F-O-R-D-H-A-M. Um, that's the easiest way to reach me. Um, yeah. website. Also, my website is enlightenedvisions.org. Mm-hmm. That is awesome. Well, Tanisha Fordham, the writer, producer, the creator of content, I want to thank all of thank uh, my audience for listening in. This is your host, John Larry. And until next time, define who you are, follow your passion, speak your truth, be unapologetically you, and always remember to walk in your excellence. Walk in Your Excellence is recorded at Necessary Studios in New York City. Produced by myself, Maya, and Nikki. Follow us on Instagram at NEC Studios. I'm your host, Sean Larry. You can find me on Instagram at Formula22, at Walk in Your Excellence. Tag the hashtag Walk in Your Excellence and visit my website, www.seanlarry.com. That's S-E-A-N-L-A-R-R-Y. Define who you are, follow your passion, speak your truth, be unapologetically you, and always remember to walk in your excellence.